Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your host, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. I want to thank everybody for joining us for another episode tonight. And joining us, as always, is the one and only Henry Sledge. Sadly, Jeff Kopsetta cannot be with us tonight, but joining us in Jeff's place... Well, maybe not in his place, but as a guest tonight, the one and only, you have seen him on YouTube, you've listened to his stories, from Tall Tales with Taco Bell, Mr. Mitch Taco Bell. Sir, Henry, how are y'all doing tonight? Doing fantastic, man. Glad to be here as always. Thanks for joining us tonight, Mitch. Living the dream. Your dream seems to be very busy as late. I guess you're uh, really hitting the podcast circuit a lot lately, huh? No, I've just been taping a bunch of people um building up kind of like you guys you start building out your guest list and then it was anzac day yesterday so on sunday or was it today our time (laughs) but on sunday i was interviewing all those guys down in australia i had three interviews yep sorry i just knocked all those out recorded them tomorrow i'm recording a guy in england uh, Steve Ladd, who went from F4s to A10s. And then that night, I'm taping a guy named Matt Prey, who uh, owns an aviation company and helps folks, especially veterans, get their license and their ratings and go on to the airlines or whatever they want to do. That's fantastic. That's a great, great mission. Um, how many how many um, podcasts do you put out in a week or do you record in a week? I, I guess I would ask. Uh, I usually do one. Okay. I do I do a live show on Tuesday nights at 7 p.m., Tall Tales with Taco. And sure. then just because of the time zone change mm-hmm. with uh, guys in Australia and especially over in the U.K., I'll tape those because it's easier for me to do it at noon, yeah. 6 p.m. their time. You, you can't expect them to stay up till 3 in the morning or whatever. Well, then- we can. We've done it before, but <laughs> It makes it tough. I mean, I hate to like we yeah. had Paul Paul with Edge from World War II TV. We had Layton on, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I hate for that to happen. I know Don does too, but that that's kind of the way it's rolled. If at all possible, we'll try to do it on a Saturday or something. My problem is my house is just way too loud. Um, I got birds that scream. I got kids that scream. I got everything else. But uh, no, if at all possible, you know, especially if we're not live streaming it, we'll just pre-record it and post it later. But um before we get into that, for those in our audience who are maybe not familiar with your history, give us the um, Reader's Digest real quick. Where are you from? How did you get to where you're at? I know you served in the Marine Corps. Maybe give us a little information on that, and then we'll get to where you're at today. Oh, gosh. Um, so at six years old, I got my first flight on an American Airlines 727, which sparked the interest in aviation. Well, of course, those were the days they gave you aluminum wings when you got to meet the co- the pilot in the cockpit. Now they just slam oh. the door and tell you to put on your mask and sit down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. I've got all the I've got all the wings I collected. I used to chase flight attendants around, go to the airport on Sundays. But uh, at six years old, they said, "Hey, little boy, you want to go sit in the cockpit, just like airplane?" You know, hey, Johnny, <laughs> you ever seen a grown man naked? <laughs> Do you like the and, movies uh, about Gladiator, Jimmy? Yeah, you like gladiator movies, Jimmy? <laughs> you like you know, movies so with prisons in them? <laughs> yeah, I I go I go up there and uh, the engineer. I mean, I remember they had the big Ray Bans on there. Uh, the captain was like World War II dude. Oh, I'm sure. Um, the uh, FO was talking about dropping bombs in Vietnam. The captain was talking about dropping bombs in World War II. The engineer, he's just picking his nose and laughing at them both. 
and he gives me his cookies and stuff. And so, <laughs> you know, looking at that, that sparked aviation. And fast forward, grew up in Virginia Beach, Little Creek Amphibious Base. My dad was Navy. My grandfather was a surgeon, World War II, Guadalcanal and um, um, Okinawa. And my uncle flew F-14s. And so very naval uh, heritage family, strong heritage. So when I was in college, I had researched how to become a pilot, military pilot, civilian pilot, the whole nine yards. So I joined Army ROTC. But the problem was at the time, the major called me in and said, hey, um, you may, what do you want to do? I said, I want to fly helicopters. I want to be a pilot. And he goes, well, you may not be, you may be a cannon cocker. What do you think about that? And I'm like, well, sir, I think I'll take my chances somewhere else. And I left, I left his office. I saw these two 18 year old kids in a, in a UE or not, uh, they were in a Blackhawk. I talked to them about high school to flight school. They've almost got me sold to, to quit college, mm -hmm. join high school to flight school program. And then my fraternity brother grabs me and takes me into the student union. And there's this captain. He's got his board with all these airplane pictures. And he goes, hey, sir, uh, my fraternity brother wants to be a pilot. Can you hook him up? Well, his name's Captain Dave Berger, who is now commandant of the Marine Corps. So nice. at the time, Captain Berger's like, well, we got this airplane. We got that airplane. We got this airplane. And I'm like, well, what do I have to do to be a pilot? Well, take this aviation test. You pass that. We'll go get a physical. You pass that. Then we'll give you a contract. And we'll send you an OCS. You pass that, you graduate, you get a um, second lieutenant, you get commissioned, go to the basic school, then you go to flight school. What he didn't tell me was 10 guys got that contract and two out of 10 would eventually get their wings because guys' eyes would go bad. They would fail out or they would uh, quit school or, you know, whatever happened, they fell out of OCS. Uh, so that's it. So then I got my wings in 91, two days before the Gulf War started. Wow. And I got to Little Rock, learn how to fly C-130s with the Air Force. Then on to Cherry Point, uh, the war ends. All the squadrons gone. They come back. I, uh, I fly meek hours in the mid-90s. And then I go to Okinawa for a year and spend a year over in Oki, 94 to 95. So I was blessed because I was there for the Okinawa 50th anniversary um preparation so i was on the committee and helped with that but i was on iwo jima for the 50th anniversary of iwo jima and spent two weeks here so i got to go caving and i got to meet all the vets that came back i was going to ask i would assume that the marine corps put on a little bit of a pomp and circumstance as far as a um greeting oh, to yeah. some of the veterans and this i don't want to say celebrate but the acknowledgement of the the history and the date and the fact that you're there i mean just to be there one, be there on, you know, year 65 would be cool. But to be there actually on the 50th anniversary and to be part of that and to be in the Marines, I mean, it'd be one thing just to be a tourist being there. But I just couldn't even imagine. And I'm sure well, as being an active member, you probably had access to areas that a battleground tourist wouldn't have access to, what I would assume, right? Well, those guys all arrived on Continental Micronesia 727s. And they landed and they got off. They walked them into a hangar and the Japanese were there and they would take their passport and they would stamp it. Well, they didn't separate them by sticks or by airplanes or anything. They just literally dumped them in a box. So then the vets all went off clueless, not knowing what was going on. 
and they had different events in different places. Go to the beach, go to the top of Sirabachi, go to uh, this place over by the Admiral's Cave. We had all the stuff set up and we were transporting them around. We had uh, shuttles that would just take them around everywhere. Well, at the end of the night, the vets were there to get their passports to get back onto the jet. And eh, the Japanese minor came technicality. Out <laughs> and handed them a box with full of passports. So we're like, holy crap. And so, I mean, every Marine and their brother was running around stacking passports out five abreast on these tables. And then they would open it up and they would yell. And they had all the vets lined up, you know, typical hurry up and wait. I was going to say, luckily they have training in the hurry up and wait and uh, receiving documentation exercise. Oh, I'm telling you right now, I, I can speak for those guys. They were ready to, if they could have gotten some weapons, they were ready to take Iwo Jima for the second time. Oh, I'm sure. Um, they were lined up around uh, this hangar and they'd shout out, you know, Bob Smith, Bob Smith. And everyone would shout. And then Bob, Bob Smith, Smith would come really, hobbling yeah. up and he would get his passport and, and off he goes. So I took that opportunity and I, I had a map laminated of Iwo Jima and I'll show it to you here. It's uh, in my man cave. Nice. So I had that map laminated and I had every single vet that was there. I went around to the guys and I said, Hey, sir, I'd be honored if you would, if you would sign this for me. Now, so now they, hold on. I, I just watched the episode you did with, for, I, I should know the gentleman's name. I follow him on Instagram, but the young man who does the story, the rifle where he goes around interviewing vets and. Have, oh, Andy. Yeah. Yeah. And in that episode, you said to him, boy, you are a smart young man to think of doing that. I wish I would have thought of that. You got a whole map full of veteran autographs. You beat him through the punch. So you can't. Well, that's not on the M1, but. um, But still, you you were there first. You you have a bunch of autographs from veterans. So. Hey, Andy doesn't have Medal of Honor guys on his M1. No, he doesn't. (laughs) That's a nice. And I have RV Bergen. I have RV Bergen. uh, Right up here. Yep. No, I was. So, I, I watched that. I, I was listening to that episode today while doing IT work today, and because uh, I was going through your list, I was like, "Hey, I follow him on Instagram," and that was a very, that was a fantastic interview, and not only a testament to you, but the passion he has for this project, incredible, and the fact that when you you showed him a picture from somebody he met in 2016, not only did he know the gentleman, he knew the story, but there was a moment where he got very sentimental and. Uh, Damn near got on the precipice of starting to get a little emotional just thinking about the experience he had interviewing him some six years ago. Now, that's true passion yeah. for the project and what he's doing. Oh, yeah. He just sent me a text. He's over in uh, the UK right now for the June event. And he's got a 99-year-old. He's escorting a wow. 99-year-old guy over there right now. Yeah, so, I think I saw And this. this is his last trip. He said he's done. Yeah. But Andy's passion definitely exudes from uh, just talking to him. You mm-hmm. can tell. And to have that sort of passion, I, I'm a history guy. I love military history. Uh, interviewed Dave Holland yesterday. Uh, walk, and you guys have had him on your podcast. Mm-hmm. Incredible fella. Yeah. Especially for us that are stuck over here that can't take, a, you know, a twelve fifteen thousand dollar battlefield tour. Like those guys that go to Iwo Jima, um, I'm not sure how much it costs for them to go back in 95. Uh, but I can tell you, they were only there for the day. Yeah. That's a very long, expensive journey to make it over there. But cathargic, um, there were guys that got down on their knees and broke down. It was the first time they've been back since, um, you know, 45. You know, As a matter of fact, 
you were, I was, I'll tell you this story real quick. Yeah, go ahead. I was driving around uh, with one of my buddies and we're in the Humvee and we see this dude all by himself, you know, out in the field. Stop, stop. And so I jump out and I run across and I'm going out there and this, this guy is by himself. He had gotten away from the group and had made it all the way from, uh, if you're looking at the top Siribachi, he was probably about a mile south of Siribachi, half mile maybe. And he'd gotten away from everybody. He was looking for his foxhole. So I'm wow. like, sir, you know, Jeez. you got to come with me. You got to come with me. And he goes, no, no. I'm telling you, my foxhole is right around here. There's a tree stump. It was getting shot up. There was it was a there was a stump there. They had a log and it was it was all shot up. And I was in here and da 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 da. Sure enough, man, this guy's wandering around. He finally goes, "Here it is." And we walk over, and just like he said, just just as he described it. And it's amazing to it, think that that stump and that tree hadn't rotted away in the last fifty years. That it was still, yeah. enough of it was still there to act as a, a marker and a landmark. That is amazing. Yeah. Well, whatever. I mean, they don't have big trees there. So whatever the Japanese had brought in, whatever this was, was shot up. I mean, I'm sitting here looking at the map, thinking about it. You know, they, the ships, the concrete ships up on the side of the island. Have you ever seen the photographs of the concrete ships? Yes. They were all exposed. You could walk onto them from the from the beach. So, so I walked onto this concrete ship, and the ocean's lapping down below, and parts of it's coming apart and stuff like that. But I mean, it was still there. And they, I guess, they had floated these things out there, and they were going to build a piers and um, a little um, area for safety for the ships. Kind of like what we did but, in uh, off of Normandy. Right. Right. Exactly. Um, the caves were all, uh, you know, like I said, we spent two weeks. So that place has been occupied since 45. And they had, uh, Coast Guard had a, a, a Loran station there, I believe. And they also did, um, the military did sea rescue B-17s out of there. So if a ship was sinking or had issues, they could send a B-17, drop a lifeboat. But I'm telling you right now, the caves are largely unexplored the japanese that are there they don't they don't go looking for dead japanese you know they i guess they grew the fingernails out in their hair they'd shave it off send it back to their folks so when they were dead their folks had something to bury of them so they don't worry about the body in their i mean hmm. shinto religion or whatever it is um you know we go walking we would we would go through the caves and it was incredibly hot it would be like 110 degrees down there still volcanic heat now was there a noticeable height difference in the tunnels compared to your american body or what yeah you had to you had to dip down a little bit but it was enough for two people so you could have a column of guys going this way and column going this way and they had carved in the walls uh racks um little places you could sure. you could get it so i'm, I'm not sure if you had to get some equipment or something. Everybody could pile off into these little yeah. bits, or if they wanted rest, they could jump in there and try to rest. But that temperature, I'm not sure how the hell they would, uh, they would ever get rest. But the Korean slave labor that dug that stuff, they kept those guys off the coast in little huts. Um, if they, if they died, they just rolled their bodies off into the ocean. The sharks were there constantly. Um, 
it was just there was a lot of stuff about that that island that's probably got bad juju written all over it now prior to you being stationed there and prior to your enlistment in the marines um did you have any sort of preconditioned um interest in the topic of world war ii or was being stationed there kind of what sparked it for you no you know i grew up on little creek amphibious space okay so you know my dad was navy he was chief engineer on a ship but the guy next to me was a dentist in world war ii on a ship and this this is 1973 i'm cutting grass for this guy you would go check out a mower from the the mm-hmm. this lady and i would go cut grass for two dollars a lawn or 250 a lawn well this guy he he's moving and he liked me and he goes i've got something for you mitch and he hands me a japanese samurai sword <laughs> that he <laughs> what won age hard game over in the pacific what age were you <laughs> oh i still have it no so what age were you um god i would have been about eight <laughs> nowadays you know we can't even give our eight-year-olds a bb gun without neighbors freaking out let alone a, no, well, <laughs> a captured samurai what, sword from the pacific and you're War taking II. that to school no yo so i go back well you could back I, then nowadays forget about it they'll stop you at the sidewalk yeah i'm sitting here on the couch and i open it up across my legs and slice the top of my legs oh it was i mean it wasn't deep or anything but it cut me and uh, my mom's like what happened to your legs oh, nothing nothing but Cat. we used to go Dempsey dumpster diving. I don't know if you guys did that growing up, but they would, my Boy Scout bee hut was right next to the SEAL team, SEAL, two, seemed to, SEAL team two. And my neighbor, Barry Heath, was a Royal Marine stationed with the SEAL team guys, the exchange tour. So I got to meet Dick Marchenko when I was a kid, all these SEAL guys. And we would go over to the Dempsey dumpster and go diving on Monday nights after Boy Scouts. So we'd pull out uniforms and, I've got two law rockets in my garage that I still have. They were <laughs> expended, but um, radios, lights. I mean, we, we'd find all sorts of stuff on Monday nights when we went diving in their dumpsters. That's great. Apparently, their EOD didn't have to blow any of that stuff up, at least not the not the non-explosive stuff. No, no. I mean, the law rockets were all expended. They just yeah, threw those the canisters in the, uh, in the dumpster. But as a kid, you watched all the war movies and mm-hmm. Rat Patrol and... You know, any war movie that came on, we'd go watch it. So we play Army in the Woods. Now, if I'd spent all the time with my dad, which I should have as a he was a mechanic, he would pull the engine out of his car and he would say, hey, come help me. And I'm like, no, dad, I'm with my friends. Mm-hmm. Now I get the same. I feel like uh, what's that song? Cats in the Cradle. Yep. I get the same thing. I'm like, hey, son, we're taking the Fox, you know, this big armored vehicle. We're taking the Fox for breakfast. Michael's going to be in his Humvee. Dad's going to drive the Jeep. Let's go. Nah, I'm, I'm spending the night with my friends, Dad. You, you go ahead. Just got home from work and the kids got the flu, but sure nice talking to you, Dad. Exactly. Hey, get the car keys. See you later. May I have yep. them, please? My 13-year-old would rather go next door than stick around here and help me with something. <laughs> That's what he did to me the other day. So, Yeah, I mean, we're getting old. I don't know what... Uh, I'm doing something wrong, but to well, answer yeah, your long story short, I lo- I've always loved aviation. I've always loved history. But when I got into college, what, what did I study was modern European history. Nah. See, and so to be able to go to all these different places, Kwajalein, Guam, uh, Wake, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, especially, we go caving in Okinawa. Did I ever tell you that story? Did I tell you that story, Henry? 
Yeah, you did the night I was on your show. I remember you and Freddie Joe were talking about that. Yeah, we had this guy. We had, and if I talk too much, just stop. No, I just wanted to pause. Real, guess, I want. I wanted to pause real quick just to join in what you were saying, and then I, want, yes. I definitely want to hear that story. It just occurred to me. Me, you, and Henry are varying ages, but we all played "quote unquote" guns when we were kids. We all either played war or guns, and like previously said, at the Rickenback Air Force Base, we'd buy stuff from the PX, old helmets, whatever. Yeah. Uh, my best friend's dad, who lived in the apartment two streets over, was a gunnery sergeant, a gunny sergeant in the Marine Corps. His mom was retired Navy. I spent all my time over there. But how crazy is it that we went from a world where three guys from you know varying ages? all played quote unquote guns as a kid. But now if our kid makes a gun out of a pop tart in school, he gets expelled and possibly catches a misdemeanor charge that, you know, something we all did as, as good quality activity and fun outside is like, that would be, you can't go home and play guns. What's the matter with you? Yeah. But you could sit on and play a video game of mm -hmm. a car chase chasing people and carjacking them and shooting them or you can play call of duty world at war but playing some bouncing betties and watching very great details someone gets their leg blown off but i digress yeah <laughs> so. yeah, yeah but don't go outside and play i mean yeah. remember the cartoons back in the day mm. it was uh advertising the little toy guns the and m16s and stuff and i i remember every year for my birthday i would go dad you know, what do you want for your birthday, son? I'm like, dad, I want an M16 for my birthday. And every year my dad would say, because I had a rubber duck M16. Yep. My neighbor down the street was a warrant officer and a Marine warrant officer. And he brought home all of these rubber ducks and he issued them. I mean, we had a sign oh, for that's it. Badass. Talk about responsibility, right? Yeah. We had a sign for this M16A1 rubber duck. That's it's awesome. full scale, full size. But we go out in the woods. We're like, bang, 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 bang. And, you know, every year I'm like, Dad, I want an M16 for my birthday. My dad's like, son, you join the Marines. They'll pay you to play with one. Yeah, and then everybody else will ask you, hey, you need some more ammo. And then you're stuck in the hut cleaning your gun all night where everybody's laughing at you. I learned that from your podcast today, too. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> Tell that, that story that to Henry OCS. real quick. Yeah, that was OCS, man. Here, hey, you like shooting blanks? Here, have my magazine. Oh, <laughs> He was out there doing blank firing, and he was just having a heyday shooting blanks. And so everybody around is like, well, here, you can have my magazine. And so he winded through six or seven magazines, not knowing that blanks are super dirty. And all that oh, God, man. powder has to go somewhere. Dudes. And so All the prior enlisted dudes screwed me. <laughs> Shame on me, man, being that stupid naive. But, boy, it was fun. And, you know, nothing else is more fun than shooting a hog, shooting an M60, even though you got to. A BFA on it. That's a lot of fun too. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that. So back to your camp out you were talking about that I rudely interrupted you with my childhood stories of fun and frolicking. You were gonna say where camp you out. you would go yeah, you were, you said you would go camping in the caves or you're doing something. Oh, oh, uh in Okinawa we yep. had this guy, uh made you a Fitzgerald, and we we're in the club and we we're eating Texas popcorn, you know, a popcorn with a bunch of hot sauce on it and drinking beer. And this guy goes, hey, Skipper, what are you guys doing tomorrow? We're like, I'm sleeping in, sir. And he goes, nah, bullshit. Get your <laughs> shit together. You're going to go with me. We're going to go caving looking for dead Japs. I'm like, what? And he goes, oh, yeah. And, he, and the manual is actually, the book is on my bookshelf in the other room. But the Army produced this fantastic book on the Battle of Okinawa with all the maps. and has photographs in it and the whole nine yards. It's about that thick. Oh, I thought you were going to say that you were issued a 
uh, manual things not to do while stationed on Okinawa in subsection C said go cave diving for chaps in the middle of the night. Yeah, no, no, no. We went, we went next day. But the problem is, you know, you got habu snakes down there that are highly poisonous. Spiders and everything else. Well, the spiders are huge. Yeah. The big banana spiders that drop out of the trees. So when we're sitting there driving along, you can see the outline of the ridge and all the trees and stuff are, are up there. But you can make out the ridge line against the photographs that were, you know, all bare back in World War II. But you can kind of make out that ridge. And so he'd be like, turn left, turn right, turn left, turn right. And it was like, stop. So we get out we have our canteens on. We have, I've still got my walking stick downstairs. I use it when I'm walking. It's my dog be good stick. Mm -hmm. And um, you go through and you're walking through the fields and you're just stepping, watching, looking for damn haboos. We got through this field, farmer's field, and you get up and break into the canopy. Well, when you walk along the canopy, he'd just stop and he'd go, Right there, start digging. My, how can you tell that there's a cave here? He says, well, the Marines didn't go up and, and like shoot these guys, you know, get climb in the cave with them. They go up there and either um, they throw a satchel charge or something, try to blow the entrance mm -hmm. up. So over the years, it's kind of divoted. So as you're walking along and you're looking, it, it would kind of divot. And so you start digging. And sure enough, you would dig and, and, and you'd bust through about, you know, about that much dirt you get through it really wasn't that much and you get through and there would be bones in there skulls you know wow. the, the ribs cage sticking up through the mud um the clay that had dropped down from the uh, be thing somewhat that, eerie yeah it was crazy you, you know everything metal was gone i've got uh eyeglasses mm-hmm you know, but all the metal rims uh, were all gone. The heels of the boots, for some reason, survived. The boots themselves were gone. The leather was gone. The heels survived. Um, metal dishes were gone. We'd find little um, ceramic dishes, yeah. little sake bowls or whatever. We found those. Uh, we'd find tubes, these white cylindrical tubes, and they were mortars. But they all the metal was gone. It was just the explosives. Um, that was Okinawa. And plus, you couldn't be squeamish because like the ceiling would be covered in these centipedes. Oh, boy. And creepy crawlies up top. So you really had to bend down, kind of use your stick, bend down because you want to get your head up in the in the deal. We had hats on with bandanas clipped to the back of the uh, boonie hat. Sure. Um, so anything fall on you kind of. Brush off. But some of these caves would be connected and we would go from cave to cave to cave. Then we'd come back out and leave. Then we go find another one and we would go dig and look for stuff. But uh, when we found the bodies, we'd go back, we mark them on a map and then he would go back and he would turn those into the Japanese. Japanese didn't actively go out and look for remains, but if remains were brought to their attention, they would retrieve them. And then uh, found out last night, Apparently, what they'll do is they'll uh, cremate those remains, and then they send them up to this big Shinto uh, war memorial up in Tokyo for the unknown soldier, and they'll add that to the uh, to the mix, pay tribute to the guys. So yeah, we did that, and then in Iwo Jima we went. I mean, but you were kind of like uh, Little Red Riding Hood, le leaving breadcrumbs. We had string and stuff like that. Yeah. Because, you know, you start kind of going down into these caves and all you have is, you know, you've got the uh, 
we had the uh, real primitive lamps mm-hmm. and it would have like four battery you know super dim by today's here. standards yeah i mean back in 94 it was really primitive so we were walking around in there. You had canteens. It's hot. If you uh, you got lost, you could get pretty screwed. I was going to say, I'm sure it's probably rather easy to lose your orientation. You have no horizon, no landmarks. Everything's just slimy and the same. No, you got nothing. Um, now, Okinawa was wet and slimy with bugs. Iwo Jima was dry. Uh, I've got a – I wish I'd get up and go get it, but it's a, a canteen that I found over there that I – brought back from Iwo Jima and a thousand stitch belt and uh, Okinawa I have a ceramic hand grenade wow because they ran out of metal so they make these ceramic hand grenades unbeknownst to them they were more mortal than a regular hand grenade because the ceramic pieces don't show up on uh, x-rays yeah maybe living with it for a long time yeah well if they can't find it you know it's severed in the body somewhere Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's you just know, sharp. It you could be fine for years, and one day just lean the wrong way and cut something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they were dangerous. So what year did you get out of the service? I joined in 86. I retired in 2015. Oh, a nice long run. Well, uh, active, I probably have 12 years active, and then the rest of it's reserves. What got you into the history-telling business? uh vj day like two years ago um covid had hit i was sitting at home i called up um don graves who was iwo jima vet and i got him on the speaker and i was talking to him and i was videotaping uh facebook live i just did a facebook live and i put it up on the counter and i'm just leaning over talking on the telephone sure and then i called um Carmen Gizzi, who was, um, he was uh, one of the glider pilot guys that went in. He was 503rd or something, glider infantry, whatever those guys were. I'm not, the Army stuff is not my forte. Sure. But um, I called him up and I talked to him. Hey, what was your, you know, you guys had already ended in, in uh, Europe, but what about Japan? Oh, yeah, we celebrated that too. Mm-hmm. Still couldn't go home, but we celebrated it. You know, so I had those guys on. And then somebody said, "Hey, you ought to do a podcast." I'm like, "What the hell is a podcast?" Joe Rogan wasn't on my uh, radar at the time, and I just when, I didn't know what the hell to do. When so pod, I did a uh, when podcasting first came out, I resented the name so bad. I hated the name long before I ever got a podcast because I'm a computer guy and I'm like anti Mac, and the fact that they named iPod uh, they named this form of Broadcasting after the iPod just it irked the hell out of me, and I I I I hated the name for the longest time. But now it's it's just synonymous for internet radio show. Most people don't realize oh it's named after the iPod, but yeah. So instead of broadcasting, they called it podcasting because most people listen to it by downloading to their pod their iPod. And it just as a computer guy who was anti Apple, it just drove me nuts for years. But I finally got over it. But oh, that's funny because. You know, it was like, well, I do have a whole host of really interesting friends yep. and connections. And I said, you know what? The first person, I was uh, RV Bergen. Do you guys, mm-hmm. we, you know, RV. Yep. So I was at his uh, funeral and, and he'd asked me to give his eulogy. So I gave the eulogy. And at the end, um, I met Scott Gibson, who you guys have had on. Mm-hmm. 
and Scott gave me a coin from the Pacific and I'm just such a, a nice guy. And so my first person was, Hey, it's still kind of around VJ date. Let's talk to captain Haldane, you know? Yeah. And so he was my first guy, but it was with Facebook. It didn't work at all. It was a failure. Yeah. So I have 85, 87 episodes, including top gun stuff. Um, but officially I think it's at 83 Tuesday over 90 total but my very first one with him didn't work my second one i got uh, Streamyard, and then from there i had dale die on we talked about his time with band of brothers and how he got into it in the whole nine yards then my third one was don graves from iwo jima and then it just kind of kept going kept anybody that interests me hey oh you're an sr 71 pilot sure oh, that's right hey you want to come on my podcast so that's how it started yeah but of course they they always say Oh, you got a podcast? Everyone's got a podcast. I'm like, yeah. I was talking to somebody the other, the other day about that because, um, you know, he's a couple years older than me and he's he plays music. And I was joking around with him. I said, you know, in 2022, having a podcast is like having a garage band in the 80s. Everybody has one. And it's, it's you use of- that same analogy with me when I first met you. Yeah, I was like, you know, if, if you're looking to do a podcast to get famous or make money, look somewhere else. If you want to do a podcast because you love the format and you want to share information with people and you're happy if four people listen, then this is the, the format for you. But uh, we've been going... I I started in 2018, 2019. I have to look at my logo. For those of you wow. new to the show, if you look at the WTSP logo and you wonder why it says WTSP and has zero one. 72018. That is the air date of our first episode, which would have been January 7th, uh, 2018. So oh, that's cool. Started out with me by myself. At the time, I was working in terrestrial radio. And so I started doing it on the side. And um, I made the wise, for those of you working in radio, I made the wise decision when they, 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 they came to me and said, Hey, you know, we're annoyed with all your World War II talk, but. Um, we think maybe it, do a 30-minute once-a-month thing on World War II and maybe we can get it out there. But I was smart enough to say, sure, let me do it from my house. Yeah. So I do it from my house, on my equipment, on my time. Don't get paid for it. Guess who owns it? Me. If I would have done it at the radio station, on their microphone, on their equipment, guess who would have owned it? them <laughs> so i made sure to set everything up in my house so i could separate the two did it on my own time not on the clock never got paid for it so when i left radio it wasn't an issue because even though they hosted like the first 10 episodes on their site as well because i did it on my own equipment on my own time off the clock it, it was all mine so that's kind of how i got into it and um for the first few years it was me alone and then jeff came on and then i don't know i think he and i did Quite a few episodes, and then Henry was brought to me through a friend of ours that um, I do living history with, and um, it's been gangbusters ever since. Ever since, um, you know, because when I first started doing what you do, I was trying to find guests because I'm sure, as you've probably learned if you tried to do it, sitting in your room recording yourself talking to no one <laughs> is very, very hard. Even yeah, there's no feedback. Yeah. yeah. But talking to someone else, you can have direct conversation. Now you don't feel like a loon talking to yourself in a room, thinking you're schizophrenic. Now you're engaged in the conversation. You just happen to be doing it on a microphone and broadcasting it. And it's so much easier. And so as as the show went over time, I went from doing one a month to maybe three, depending on who my guests were, to now we pump one out every week. Because even if I don't have a guest book, I have Henry to talk to or Jeff and Henry to talk to. And 
So there's always that sounding board. And so it's so much easier whether you have two hosts or consistent guests. I could not imagine, especially if you don't have any radio experience or news brought, I could not imagine trying to do a single-person podcast weekly. It would just be well, so hard. I mean, even Don ba- Bongino, I, I listened to him. Even he has his guy that he bounces stuff off of, you know, when he's talking and he's just kind of sitting there talking, but he will be, Hey, what do you think about this? Yeah. What did you think? Yeah. You know, and, and you get some feedback. Well, even Mark Otherwise, Levin and Rush Limbaugh did that. Of course, you never heard Mr. Producer. Or you never heard Snurdly. He wouldn't, they would never play, but they would always have someone to say, what do you think, Mr. Producer? And so they would yeah. always have someone to talk to just to kind of recharge their, their system. But no, uh, your, your show is doing well. And it, I'm shocked to how, short the livelihood is that this is another one of those um great results from the pandemic uh paul wood was just the same way when he had him on he said you know pandemic i'm not doing tours yeah i think he's what do he say uh henry his first episode was like four hours long you did like a yeah, four-hour live stream it's always this evolutionary process you know like tacos was talking about and then like it's been for you don and, and now the three of us uh, but yeah yeah woody said that his first one was four hours long. He felt like he didn't know what he was doing, but something clicked, you know. Well, and and that's a testament to him, too. And it's going back to the radio format. You know, we do a show that's usually 110, 120 minutes, but that's 110, 120 minutes nonstop from the time we start the show till the time we end. Even if you're doing a four hour radio show, you're doing 20 minutes. You got eight hour commercial breaks and do 20 minutes. So at the end of the day, even after a four hour radio show, you're doing two hours with you know, 20 minutes at a time. So you have time to stop, take a break, reset. Whereas we go for 120 minutes straight and then shut it down and go about our way. And so to do a four right. hour nonstop, like that, I almost had to feel like a Jerry's marathon. <laughs> I can imagine. Oh, it is. I, I literally, I got together with this guy, Michael Sheriff. I was interviewing Pete Pettigrew who played the old man, the older man in the original top gun. Okay. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah. So Admiral Pettigrew was the top gun advisor for the movie which of course was a huge influence on, on me as an aviator and Pettigrew, I had him on the show and this guy Maverick was whatever popped up. It was Maverick from top gun group. And, and he wrote me and said, can you get me in touch with Admiral Pettigrew? I am, I run this top gun fan club group. And I think at the time, May of last year, he had 7,000 followers. Mm Mm-hmm. Now he has over 50,000 people. Wow. And so I become friends with it. And, is, and, and so I was like, what's, what's your real name? First of all, cause I don't go, you know, I, yeah. I got to know who I'm talking to. And he's like, Oh, Oh, Michael Sheriff. Where, where do you live? Michael? Oh, I'm over in Scotland. Nice. Greatest, greatest guy in the world. Big Top Gun fan. How is that group? How is their feelings of anticipation for the new release? The new. Oh, they can't wait. We're, we're having actually, I'm flying out in May 15th. I'm flying out to San Diego. We're having a big Top Gun, original Top Gun special where we've got tour buses. We're going to all the places that they filmed, doing all the touristy stuff. I just think it's cool. Henry, and, have you um, seen any of the previews for the new one? I've seen them all, man. They're no, all Henry, awesome. I'm, I'm asking Henry if he's... Oh, Henry, I'm sorry. I mean, yeah, no. I've seen a couple of the trailers. Um, have you seen the end cockpits footage that they did? Yeah. Um, if I did, it was really brief. What they did on this new one is they did all the in-flight scenes in dual seat trainers and they just filled the cab full of cameras. And so 
when you're watching the movie and they're flying, you actually see the G-forces on their face so they can get their more realistic looks when they're pulling these maneuvers. And so all the, you know, Tom Cruise, a badass, he does all this stuff all the while, but the supporting cast, a lot of them cats have never been in that situation. And so they're up in these trainers and you just see their face peeling back and all that. And so when you see the movie and you see all that on their face, that's not sitting in a simulator doing, you know, CGI. That's him in a dual seater uh, training, getting full G's in effect. So well, they, they tried that. To it. Yeah, they tried it in the original movie, but the cameras at that time were, were too just big. Not, they were too big, right? Yep. And the Navy requires all sorts of stuff to modify uh, anything on a naval aircraft to attach cameras to it or whatnot. And so they got the Navy to approve cameras on the wings, cameras on the back. So the flyby scenes and stuff like that, that's all filmed. But um, that new stuff with Tom Cruise, I had to do a double take the very first time I saw it because I saw an article that said Tom Cruise will not do the movie unless he gets to fly in it. And that's what it said. Yeah. And then I see this video of him and you see him doing his stuff and then he breaks away and he, he's in a solo F-18. He breaks away and I'm going, holy crap. I get on my forum with my military buddy, uh, aviation guys, and I send a message. I'm like, did they really let that fool fly an F-18? And they're like, no, dude, editing. He's in the back of an F-18 two-seater. Mm-hmm. And so it's just the way they edit it, and they've got the stuff to make it look like he's flying back there. And I go, good Hollywood, man. But even still, just for an actor to be put in the back seat of one. And uh, to me, that's almost scarier because I'm a bit of a control freak. You put me on a wave runner that goes 80 mile an hour water, I'm driving – I'm great. You put me on the back seat where I got my arms wrapped around somebody doing 45 and you feel like you're going to die. So to be in the back, not in control, that to me is a much scarier. Yeah. And, you know, think about COVID. All those actors, they're, they're, the very first movie went gangbusters. This next movie is going to launch them into the stratosphere. Mm-hmm. And they've had to wait for two years, thanks to China, <sighs> to get this movie out. Yeah. And, um, when this comes out, we have a pilot shortage right now. Mm-hmm. We do. And there's no ands, ifs, or buts about it. The Air Force is begging guys to stay. The airlines are hiring. We're seeing it every day. When this movie comes out, I pray that a whole new generation of kids watch this thing and go, that's what I want to do. I want to be a pilot, you know, military pilot. So let's hope, keep our fingers crossed that, that a whole new generation, 34, 35 years later, get sparked like uh, i did back in 86 well i was gonna say if history repeats itself it will because that's kind of the joke of people who joined the navy when top gun came out they thought it was gonna be all top gun and most of them didn't even become pilots so if history repeats <laughs> itself they probably will i'm sure if you went and looked at the archives you would see a huge spike in navy enlistment when that first movie came out yeah and the other one was uh final countdown when we walked out of the movie theater in virginia beach <laughs> final countdown came out there was a recruiter navy recruiter sitting out there with his little booth with pamphlets handing them out to everybody. Cause that, uh, F 18 going against the Japanese. Mm-hmm. What a dream, you know, dream come true. F 18 squadrons against the entire Japanese fleet going against Pearl Harbor back in 1941. Yeah, baby. You trying to tell me that iron Eagle didn't have that same effect on naval enlistment. <laughs> no, that iron was air what? force. Iron Eagle. That was air force. What movie was that? Iron Eagle with, uh, I never Lou heard Go- of it. You've <laughs> never heard of iron Eagle with Lou Gossip jr. Oh, that's because it's an Air Force flick. I'm just teasing, yeah. man. That was the worst movie that's ever what, made. <laughs> it was, but I was 
12 when it came out, and it was on heavy rotation on early HBO. And so yeah. I watched the hell out of that movie. But it was pretty Well, bad. that probably appealed to you because you're like, hey, I, I'm almost 16, 17 years yeah. old. I could be flying this F-16 if my dad was CEO of the base or whatever. And come on. I mean, he saved time by playing his headphones. He said, hey, this will catch up on time. And it put him in the zone, man. <laughs> <laughs> that movie. That movie was horrible. Now, you know, Red Dawn, that was a great movie in the 80s. Except for the remake. Uh, Top Gun was a great movie in mm-hmm. the 80s. Apocalypse Now, Platoon. Henry's Dignus claws in, hoping I don't bring this next one up. But since we're on bad movies, this wouldn't be the episode of the What's the Scuttle Up podcast. If I didn't ask you, one Mr. Taco Bell, what are your opinions on the Thin Red Line? <laughs> the greatest war movie ever filmed up in... in, in Guadalcanal. Gosh, are you kidding? There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We won't go into the fact it was the only movie filmed in Guadalcanal, but, but the greatest movie ever now, filmed in Guadalcanal. Now, you know what? From what I remember, it's not a movie that I own, yep. nor is it a movie that I think I've ever seen on TV, which says something. Um, so, yeah, no. It, it was some good fiction from what I've heard, but it, yeah. Let me ask you a question with your history with the Marine Corps. I was surfing through eBay as I tend to do, and I came across a patch. Well, that's an interesting uh-huh. looking patch. Blue patch has five stars on it, a red uh, diamond, but instead of a skull or a number one, it had a, a weird little icon. And on further inspection, it was a barrage balloon. Were you familiar at all with the 1st Marine Amphibious Corp, and in this case, the attached Barrage Balloon Division? No. Check out this patch. It's supposed to be original. Did you buy it? Yeah. Look at that. I've never never seen that. So I Googled 1st Marine Amphibious Corps. Um, Let's see. The 1st Marine Amphibious Corps, or 1MAC, was the formation of the United States Marine Corps. It was created on October 1st, 1942, with most of the staff transferred from Amphibious Corps Pacific Fleet. It was then deployed to the South Pacific area. The U.S. led um, multinational military command active during World War II that was part of the U.S. Pacific Ocean area, first to Hawaii, then to New Caledonia. Uh, When the Marine Corps was not satisfied with the leadership of its commander, Major General Clayton B. Vogel, um, and Thomas Hokum, I'm sorry, Commandant Thomas Hokum ordered Alex Vandergrift to take command. Vandergrift commanded the 1st Marine Division during the Battle of Guadalcanal, as we all know, and promoted to Lieutenant Colonel. Um, I'm sorry, Lieutenant General. General Vandergrift carried on its command of the Corps, and next designated command, yada, yada, yada. But then it says... Um, Corps. Yep, yeah, Corps. The 1st Marine Amphibious Corps consisted of the 3rd Marine Division, the 37th, this work gets interesting, the 37th Infantry Division, United States, and the 8th Brigade, New Zealand. Now, the interesting thing about this 30, 37th Infantry Division, that was the Army's all-black division of barrage balloon um, crew. And so basically they, they took uh, parts, and this is just a, the brief study I did today after getting this patch in the mail. I'm going to do a lot more research on it. But from what I can tell, and it took a lot of surfing around because when you just Google the, the Barrage Balloon Division, very little comes up. But from what I can tell, um, they attached some of the uh, gentlemen from the 37th Infantry and sent them down to, to the Pacific. Obviously, we don't see a whole heck of a lot of photos from the Pacific with Barrage Balloons, but they were down there for a short period of time, and they were attached to the 
first Marine amphibious corps. So, and you're saying that was an all black unit that did the balloons? The 37th Infantry Division from the Army was attached to the first in Marine amphibious corps, and they were in charge of doing the barrage balloon stuff. But like, you I said, imagine finding one of those guys. Yeah. So, and, and this is kind of you know, and Henry and Jeff and I talk about this a lot. One of the things that interests us is finding the the stories that we don't know a lot about that we hear a lot about. So when I saw that on eBay, I was like, Ooh, I'm picking that up. And then I got it in the mail today and just started doing some minor research. I'm going to do a lot more to find out a lot more about that division. But yeah, it's pretty interesting. That's a problem. We're too late. Yeah. Here's something. I mean, Henry, God, think about if you could go back in time to go with your dad mm-hmm. to the reunions or my grandfather, in my case, my grandfather served in Europe. As as a project, you know, yeah. uh, hey, I'm 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 doing a I'm doing a history project for school. Let's talk, or kind of like what uh, Andy does when he hands them mm-hmm. the M1, and those guys just open up and start talking. Mm-hmm. The opportunities that you had, unfortunately, nowadays, guys, you know, we're relaying stories that we've heard secondhand, yep, third hand, right? And it's third hand, and it's not even the same. Well, I mean, it's, it's I've told the story before, Taco. I mean, and Don's heard it. Um, I got to meet Snafu, you know, in 1984, he and his wife came to visit my dad and my mom and I walk in and there's this short stocky guy sitting there and and my dad introduced, you know, Snafu is my son, Henry. And I knew who Snafu was because hell I'd read my dad's book twice by that time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I just, I wish. I mean, I shook his hand. It was great to meet him, but I retreated from the room to let them do do their thing. And I I wish I'd stayed in there. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I could travel back just a seven short years. I was telling Jeff one time before I ever did the podcast, I do computers for a living. And I was down at Fort Myers Beach. I got called down to this ice cream parlor to work on their security cameras. And I'm walking out and there's a car parked right on the sidewalk. The the gentleman's daughter or granddaughter was inside. He was sitting in the passenger seat. He had a first Marine uh, division hat on and um, walked up and asked him what years he served. He said 44, I mean, 41 to 44 and um so instead of asking the generic questions before you ever kill somebody i just simply said um so you were down in uh did you send you down to new zealand yep yeah. were you there for the new zealand dock worker union strike <laughs> and his <laughs> la- eyes just lit up because i'm i'm asking him something about the war i'm a 30 year old and I'm sure he's, he's like, got. Who mil- the hell are you? Well, I'm sure he's got millions of questions about the mundane stuff. But the fact that I brought up the New Zealand dock worker union strike kind of let him know that I knew something on the subject. And he started, oh, that that oh, that was. He's talking about the rain and the mounds of all the boxes falling apart. And we sat there and we talked for 30 minutes about his time in the Marines and down in New Zealand and all that. But not once do we bring up combat. And just you could see him. By not bringing up the combat, I sparked all the good time memories he had. Yeah. And it's like, looking back on now, it's like, that was four years before I started this podcast. That would have been such a great interview. I, I wish I could have handed him business cards and said, hey, can I call you on the phone and record it? You know? But he and I just had a one-on-one, 30-minute conversation about his time in the service and not once did combat come up. And he enjoyed it so much. He went from sitting in a car by himself, sitting out in the Florida sun in front of an ice cream parlor to talking about the good times with a random 30 year old on the beach. And, uh, but it, it's amazing to think like my dad's 84, you know, Vietnam era guys mm-hmm. are getting up there yeah, and they're dying. 
And yet you got these guys that are 10 years older and they're World War II guys just passing away. And we're just, we're not capturing the stories. So highly encourage everybody out there. If you've got a young kid, find somebody, uh, the Korean um, veterans, they're getting long in the tooth. Mm-hmm. The Vietnam veterans start recording their stories and catch these guys because uh, once they're gone, they're gone. And we've mentioned that on the show. You know, that's part of the reason why when I open the show, I say World War II base because, yes, we do a lot of World War II stuff. But, you know, in the past, I've talked to vets from other eras. And and I, and Jeff and I talked about this early on, you know. One, we want to talk Korean War II, but I've actually had people email me, oh, I know somebody who's a vet, but they weren't World War II, so you're probably not interested. I'm like, no, I'm interested in all. You know, because to say I'm not interested in your time serving during the Gulf War is basically me putting value over someone else's service. No, we're interested in all, which is why we had that caveat up World War II base, because, you know, we do from time to time breach into other other campaigns and all that. So, yeah, uh, I we talk about that where we'll, if I come across a Korean War vet, I actually have business cards. I need to make up some for Henry and Jeff. And I've done that in the past where I walk into a grocery store and I see somebody Korean War vet come up, introduce myself, give them a business card. Either they call me or they don't. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's incredible as a kid living on that stupid, on that base. I hung out with this kid, Kerry Kristoff. His dad was rear Admiral Kristoff of the base Mm -hmm. and, and rear Admiral Kristoff was one of the first Navy SEALs. Wow. You know, back in world war two when they were the UDT, what were they? UDT under UDT. underwater demolition yeah, yeah. team frogman. Yeah, he was UDT guy and highly awarded and all that. And here I had wow. the opportunity as a ten year old, but no, I'm back in the room with with Carrie playing uh, Queen on the forty uh, fives. <laughs> you know, hey, no, we will never let you go. Let him go. His dad's probably like you're playing Tron on the video game. You know, nah, we didn't have that. We had Pong. Oh uh, yeah, that's even better. Atari Pong with the Doop. two paddles. So. Yeah, yep. Waiting for yeah, you know what we used to do? Released. We'd go to the base, and we go in, and, and you had to have an ID card to get into the mm-hmm. PX, right? So we were eight, nine years old. We would walk in behind somebody. We go, "Oh, that's my mom." <laughs> <laughs> See, that's in that's in because uh, they had a, on your they part. had an Atari demo. And you go back into the TV section, stereo section, and we'd sit there and play that game for hours on a summer day, you know. Here's another one of my eBay finds. I like to buy crap that no one else. Check this out. USMC, what is that, a pencil? These are, okay, so you're oh, a logistics. A tag or something. You're a logistics officer or, you know, whatever, and you're loading up ships with Marine Corps gear and crates with bands on them well how do you distinguish the marine corps gear from the army or the navy with the exception of stamps these are band clips that they would put on the steel bands on crates oh yeah okay. and i found a pack of three so i'm gonna i got one in my collection i'm gonna send one to henry and jeff nice. been sitting on these just that, silly that. little things when's the last time you ever seen a united states marine corps world war ii crate band clip never well guess what <laughs> you're gonna have one in your collection here soon taco you're talking about interviewing somebody earlier who had a huge ass library behind them and so it's that time of the podcast where we're gonna talk books and i just got this guy in the mail interestingly enough henry you gotta talk me out of buying books in the middle of the podcast <laughs> we you know i'm not gonna do that we do podcasts and i'll i'll, I'll be on amazon I was I just finally finished the Pelu tri triagic triumph the other day and so I started and then 
I finished after that I f- finished reading the uh, Battle for Guadalcanal. So I'm I'm adjusting my my uh, books. When did I buy I Want to Stay with the Boys, the John Bazalone story? Because I found it on my bookshelf, and I'm like, when did I buy this? I must have. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, man, because Dave Holland will tell you that one's, that that's not the one you want to be going after. I, apparently, I bought it during one of my, instead of getting drunk and ordering things online at night, I just get caught up in the moment during the podcast and start ordering crap, because it's on my bookshelf, and I don't remember buying it. Hmm. But a book I do remember buying, and this is one I ordered shortly the last, I think, was the last podcast you and I were talking Coast Watchers and yeah, how yeah. they don't get enough um, no, notoriety or we know very little about them. Peter Frampton was a Coast Watcher. Really? On Bob Bob Black Sheep. Nice. <laughs> you so, don't remember that? Actually, I do. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, Peter Frampton, man. He was big, right? And there he is. He's a coast watcher in Baba Black Sheep, and they rescued. I didn't know he. What's his name? Got shot down. Didn't know he did a lot of acting. I knew. No, he's not a very good actor. Yeah, it's kind of like in Two Hundred Motels when uh, Ringo Starr played Frank Zappa, which was weird. But anyhow, uh, this book is by Walter Lord. It's called The Lonely Vigil: The Coast Watchers oh, yeah. of the Solomons. And I got this in the mail today, and I started reading it briefly while waiting for my internet to come out because Comcast had a seven-hour internet outage today statewide this thing i'm only 21 pages into this and i'm already hooked this is a very very interesting read this was when was it written 1977 okay and uh in the forwarder he talks about going back to guadalcanal and and uh talking about how some of the overgrowth was there but you could still find stuff but yeah this this was uh first published in 77 and this book itself um well is a 77 edition I don't know if this thing's limited. I had to search around because the first three or four of them I found were like damn near triple digits for price tags. It's like, what, what, the, is, the, what is the name of it again? The Lonely Vigil by Walter Lord. It's the Lonely Vigil. The full title is um, Coast Watchers of the Solomons. I mean, it has a very 1970s title. Um, Henry, hold down the fort while I grab the book cover. Okay. Yeah, I've got that. You've got that book, Taco? Yeah. And so the the cover is watercolor, and it's very hard to see from a distance, but it's got a very 1970s watercolor of some Japanese bombers in the background, a couple of cats with, yep, same book. Have you read that one yet, Taco? No, I haven't. If you or have a lull in your reading or you just finished a book, I'll tell you what, I'm only 21 pages in. Oh, is that autographed? Nice. Give it a read. I'm twenty one. I'm twenty one pages in, and it's the writing's so well done that it's almost one of those you can't put down books. So I, I, I wrote the name down. I want to check it out. Yes, it's it's a good it's it's a good one, and they basically focus on four of the one hundred coast watchers because at the very beginning they said within two thousand five hundred miles they had a hundred coast watchers, and mm-hmm. and um I once again I'm only twenty one pages in, so I don't have the names memorized. But one of the stories that stands out, um, I think it was one of the Coast Watchers who was stationed off of uh, the Florida Islands. They're talking about early on, you know, some of the Coast Watchers kind of saw the way the wind was blowing, so they're they're kind of planting food and supplies in three different areas around Guadalcanal. And they're talking, was the Battle of Coral Sea? Was that the first battle? Yeah, Coral Sea. So during the Battle of Coral Sea, one of these Japanese ships gets sank, and... 
some of the survivors wash up, I think, on an island off of, I think it was Florida Islands. And the coast watcher who was running the area, you know, he saw the way the wind's blowing, so he's starting to pack up, and he's going to ship out in the middle of the night. Well, one of the local um, natives who was a doctor, you would think, <laughs> doing all the goodness of his heart, he wants to go patch up some of these Japanese sailors who were burnt up from the fire. And so the next morning, the coast watcher takes off, tries to get the doctor to go with him. Doctor says, nah, I'm good. Thinking the doctor wants to stick around to help more injured people. When the Japanese land, the doctor, in what some might say a poor decision, went up to the representatives of the Japanese empire and demanded payment for services. <laughs> At which point is arrested, um, let's just say, heavily interviewed to the point where he gives up all the information he has about Coast Washer's <laughs> whereabouts. So luckily, prior to getting captured, the other Coast Watchers already ran for the hills. And this is all explained by page 21. So it's it, it gets to the thick of it pretty quick. But it's just like, you think it's a good idea to tell the generals of a Japanese landing craft that you want payment for providing aid to their wounded men? Yeah, well, you know, James A. Missioner gave me a bunch of stuff, and this book was one of them. And I just, it's been on my shelf. I've never read it until you said it. Now, I'm looking at the uh, postcard from Walter Lord. It says, Dear Jim, glad, uh, glad your retirement doesn't mean an end to the Missioner Grams. Glad you like Dunkirk. I liked uh, that one a lot. Um, also glad you know Phil Eckhart, one of my favorite chapters in Lonely Vigil. Keep in touch, Walter. Wow, that's Man, awesome. how cool is that? Well, and I can kind of understand why you didn't read it, haven't read it yet. Because so, once again, it's got a very 1970s watercolor cover. That covers like, like the most enticing World War II thing. But yeah. I was, I, after Henry and I were talking on the last episode about Coast Watchers, I just went on. I, like I said, I actually, I actually just Googled Coast Watchers. And I actually had to like keep searching around because I don't know if this thing's in limited press, but some of the price tags on some copies of that was pretty steep. Really? Like, what were these going for? Oh, no. Let me look. Lonely. See, I tell my wife, don't sell this crap at a yard sale for a dollar. And don't sell it for what I told you I bought it for. <laughs> yeah, this this was uh, this one is copyright 1977. Yeah, same one. I have First the published in 77, so it's got to be first edition. Yeah, I have the hardback version, but yeah... It, I'm telling you, Taka, just pick it up and start reading it. You'll be, you'll okay. be quite happy that you did. Um, well, I'm glad you brought that up because I mean I've looked at that. It's been on my bookshelf for years. Maybe maybe it was a different book. I know I looked at a couple of Coast Watcher books, and I was oh. like, why? Okay, Lonely Vigil on Amazon, twenty eight ninety five for that one. Um, I mean, which isn't tremendously, but once again, it's it's from nineteen seventy seven. But no, there was. What'd you pay for yours, Don? I got mine on eBay for even cheaper. Um, okay. But no, there must have been a different Coast Watchers book because I, I looked at a couple books this week and had like $120 price tags. And I'm like, why are these cost so much? It must have been a different book, which is why I don't have it because <laughs> I ain't paying $130 for a book. But uh, what are you reading right now, Henry? I just finished Alvin Kernan's book, Crossing the Line, which, as you know, is the third one of the trilogy of the Library of America. The first one being my dad's and then the second one being Samuel Hines. Uh, Flights of Passage, who was a Marine aviator, TBM pilot. Um, and then day before yesterday, I started, when I finished Kernan's book, I started Pacific Crucible, 
which is Ian Toll's first volume of the trilogy, his trilogy of the Pacific War. So I'm about 70 pages into that. And I'm, I'm having, uh, uh, I'm having so much trouble finding the time to, to knock the books out. Well, that's why because it took me three months to read Paul Who Tragic Triumph between between all the podcasts and closing business down. I was the same way. I'm like reading 15 minutes a night at that. Yeah, I'm interviewing that F4 pilot, and I'm reading his book. But which is kind of funny about his book, halfway through his book, he hasn't talked about flying. Huh. <laughs> halfway through the book, I'm crying because it's 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 stuff that they did as dumb lieutenants. You know, like. <laughs> capturing this donkey and letting it loose in the O club and <laughs> fighter pilot stuff. And you're sitting there going, Oh my God, you would, you'd be arrested and kicked out of the air force in today's standards. Yeah. If you caught doing half the crap that they were doing. So fun. when you had time to read some books, what's the last good book you can remember reading that? Cause we actually have people email us saying, Oh man, you, you talked about this book and I went out and bought it. So people actually kind of, they listen for the books that we're reading and, uh, Give it a run. You, um, not to put you on the spot. I mean, if you hadn't read a book, uh, a Rid, I just read this Rid Eagles. It's not World War II, oh, but fine. I never knew that we had secret MiGs. We have we had an entire squadron of secret MiGs that we flew against our uh, fighter guys. Like, were these American built or were these ones we bought on a black market somewhere and painted oh, them up? Black market. I mean, idiots. Uh, they had some some guys from Yemen or something fly their MiGs into Israel or, you know, just stupid stuff. And the the airplanes would find their way over to Area 51. And they had a top secret base over there in Area 51 where they not only did all the testing against the airplanes and the capabilities, but then they would put those guys up against our F-4s and F-14s and whatnot to give them real life combat. I never knew we had that. I mean, it was such a top secret program. I mean, it makes it was only declassified like 10 years ago. I mean, it makes perfect sense because every plane, depending on the model and the shape, it has a different maneuverability in a flight, you know, as you know, since. And so if you're going to train to go up against a certain type of plane, it, it behooves you, if you will, to have that plane to chase down. But no, I, I never knew that either. Well, what's funny is, you know, when we shot down the two Libyan MiGs in the uh -huh. eight, early 80s, those F-14 guys had gone up against these secret MiGs. And, and they talk about the startle factor. When you first come canopy to canopy with a real MiG, you're just like, holy shit. Can we cuss? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> holy shit. That's a MiG. Yeah. MiG, you know, and, and it kind of throws them out of the root loop. Well, by dogfighting these guys and understanding what their capabilities are versus yours um they were so over prepared when they went up against the libyan migs and shot them down it, it wasn't even fair have to those I, guys have either one of you and i wasn't that's why I was, I was searching for this have either one of you seen the documentary called above and beyond the birth of the israeli air force no I but i read a, i read a book about it i have a book um, God, I have a book somewhere on check it out, Henry. The whole, being an the air, whole birth of those guys, being an Air Corps guy, and the reason I bring this up is you sparked my memory. Talking about the black market MIGs, how this whole thing kind of started was is Israel obviously needed an air force, 
But basically, <laughs> through some creative fundraising and the enlistment of um, retired World War II pilots, they bought some World War II airplanes at auction, <laughs> but they couldn't fly them over to Israel because of all the politics involved. So what they ended up doing is somehow they bamboozled down South America. They bamboozled was it Cuba or Venezuela? It was one of those countries where they basically said, "Hey, we're going to either donate or some sort of weird. We're going to bring these planes down and make them part of your airlines or whatever." They registered them down there, and then they basically stole them in the middle of the night, flew over to Israel. That's how they got some of them. And then they bought other planes where they ended up buying them, taking the wings off of them, shoveling them in the back of freight planes. And the whole story is just insane. You have to watch. I'm not giving it justice. I was watching one on Netflix, and you're just watching you're like, how was this never made into a feature movie, what these guys went through? The- oh, it was top secret. You would go interview up in New York with with the guys and then they would hire you and it was all super secret Mm -hmm. they were going over and they were buying me 109s and they were creating up me 109s and shipping them over to israel and fighting the palestinians or whoever in me 109s jews flying german fighters bizarre yep um (laughs) they were using spitfires p51s they would they would bring them over uh, through Switzerland and then they would bring them down and the weather was a factor and getting them in there. I've got the book. Yeah, and it's all and it was all it's wicked incredible. illegal. So anyone I'm getting caught smuggling these airplanes, we're looking at. But they jail time. Most of them were World War II pilots, and they were looking. They wanted that adrenaline rush. They wanted to get back in the sky. They they weren't happy with their civilian play. And I'm watching this documentary. I'm like someone needs to make a Hollywood feature about this. Is just too damn interesting. But it's a great little documentary. It was on Netflix. It's called Above and Beyond. It came out in 2014. Uh, it's a very very good documentary. So that'll be my Netflix suggestion of the week. Well, yeah, I will uh, go back my my bookshelf in the other hallway. I will find the book that I read on that and send you a picture of it. Sure. That that is the book that that movie or documentary is based off of. It's fascinating. I've had this queued up since the beginning of the show. And so we rarely do this. But for Mr. Mitch Taco Bell, this is for you. What's that? Oh, hold on. My help if I unmute my player to prevent weird background noises. Here we go. Ever been in a cockpit before? No, sir. I've never been up in a plane before. Have you ever young seen Mitch. a grown man naked? Do you want me to check the weather, Clarence? No, why don't you take care of it? Joey, do you ever hang around the gymnasium? We better get back now, Joey. No, Joey can stay here for a while. Could I? Okay, if you don't get in the way. Flight 209 to Denver Radio. Climbing to cruise at 42,000. We'll report again over Lincoln. Over and yeah, out. I know you. Wait a minute. I know you. You're Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. You play no, I'm basketball for the Burrow. Los Angeles Lakers. I'm sorry, son, but you must have me confused with someone else. My name is Roger Murdoch. I'm the co-pilot. You are Kareem. I've seen you play. My dad, My dad says, says you suck. <laughs> I think you should go back to your seat now, Joey. Right, Clarence? Oh, he's not bothering anyone. Let him stay here. All right, but just remember, my name is Roger Murdoch. I'm an airline pilot. I think you're the greatest, but my dad says you don't work hard enough on defense. And if you he had to drag so-and-so up the You don't court. even run down court. 
that you don't really try, except during the playoffs. The hell I don't. Listen, kid. I've been hearing that crap ever since I was at UCLA. I'm out there busting my buns every night. Tell your old man to drag Walton in the near up and down the court for 48 minutes. <laughs> yeah, that's the type of humor you couldn't put in a comedy nowadays. <laughs> you, Definitely you know, not. Do you know what's funny? You guys have watched, you all grew up on Caddyshack, mm-hmm. uh, Vacation. Oh, Lord. Uh, oh, man. You know, I'm sitting there watching. Uh, I've got a 50, I'm 56. I've got a 50-some-year-old captain in the left seat. And I got this brand new hire, 28-year-old millennial sitting in the right seat. And I'm saying stuff to the captain. I'm like, you know, I'm making it rain. I'm like, yeah, I don't think the heavy stuff's going to come down for quite a while yet. And, and we're just throwing Caddyshack references back and forth. And then he breaks out. And I'm like, man, I picked the wrong week. Quit sniffing glue. <laughs> yep. and, the, and finally, the kid turns around. And he looks and he goes. What code are you two speaking? <laughs> oh, I wish I was there because I would have looked at him to what's say, go and say, pray to Jay, the same old, same old. See that booty down? Lay him down and smack him, yak him. <laughs> <laughs> Excuse me, stewardess. I speak jive. <laughs> oh, God. Chump want no help. Chump get no help, jive ass turkey. Got no brains, anyhow. Taco, what is the name of the gentleman standing over your right shoulder? Oh, that's. Um uh, that is Gunny. Do you do you know who who is your favorite Marine that worked with um, all the guys doing the boot camp? You're talking about Dick Die? Are you talking about? Is oh, that Freddie Joe? That's Freddie Joe. <laughs> oh, so Freddie Joe. I was out in uh, San Diego in October, and he gave me that uniform from the Pacific. That's fantastic. That's he said he was going to give me one on that night. I was on y'all show. He said he was going to give me one, but I never heard any more about it. So it don't matter. Uh, you you got the go, real McCoy go hanging on. I actually wall. have. Now, what is yours? That's Barbie, just Barbie. that's just Steve. Um, I'm a living historian, and I never show Steve on the camera much. But uh, what I do because I don't wash my uniforms because when I do living history, I want them to look real. Um, after each event, I simply come home and put them on Steve and allow them to air out. And so. The last event I did, I was wearing my Army HPTs, but if I do a Marine Corps event, I'll come home and hang my either my P-41s or my P-42s on them. So Steve there usually has a different uniform, but this has been a dead season for me because back in February, I blew the soles out of my jump boots, and um, i got to get them repaired. So I'm kind of – that, and I'm in a career transition, so I'm taking this season off, but I'm going to get back into it heavily next year. But, yeah, I, it's so funny. I'm sure you have this experience too. Because you usually have a stormtrooper, somebody standing there. Do you ever have the guests come over? Oh, yep, there you go. I remember the, when I first got this mannequin. Um, I, 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 my kids hate it. It scares the shit out of me. Well, that's what I was getting to. I, guests would come over. Where can I put my jacket? Oh, you can put it in the uh, studio there and open the door. Ah! Somebody, it happens every time. The first time someone comes over and they open that door, they're just jumping through their skin because they think someone's in the room. Pretty Joe. Oh, oh, oh! I think my internet may have gone out again. Oh, you're back. I think my internet's starting to break okay. up. My internet was out for seven hours today, and you guys are starting to break oh, up. That's you, brutal. Oh, you're back. You got me now. Yep, Freddie Joe. Yeah, Freddie Joe. I on? had uh, James A. Missioner's uniform from Iwo Jima uh, on that mannequin, nice. and then I was out there, and Freddie Joe gave me 
his uniform and I'm, I'm like, I'll put this one back in the closet and throw him on. Well, my internet is getting a little shaky, so I think that's a no better time to wrap it up before we lose connection again. Real quick, uh, thank each and every one for hanging out for another episode of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast. If you enjoy the show and you want to help support what we're doing here over at Digital 410 Media, please head over to WTSPWorldWar2.com. Click on that orange Patreon link. You can sign up for Patreon. It only costs you a dollar a month. If you kind of like us, if you sort of like us, you can sign up for three fifty. Or if you like us, like us, like Winnie Cooper on the Wonder Years, you can sign up for the Long Arms Deep Pocket Plan. It's $7.00. 50 cents a month and after month two we will send you a free WTSP t-shirt kind of like the K-Ration dinner shirt I'm wearing right now you can't see because my microphone's in the way and while you're there please click on the link and head over to YouTube and look for Digital 410 or click on the link through our website and like and subscribe to our channel and you can help us out that way. But if you don't want to buy a t-shirt, that's fine. If you don't want to subscribe, that's fine. If you don't want to sign up for Patreon, that's fine too. But as our friend Mitch Taco Bell can tell you, the best way to support a show is just to share us with a like-minded friend. Doesn't cost you a dollar. Just say, hey, check out this podcast. And uh, we'd greatly appreciate it. And speaking of Mr. Taco Bell, why don't you put out the links and the plugs for your page, sir? Tall Tales with Taco Bell on Facebook and YouTube. But I was also going to say, Dave Holland, go look him up on YouTube, uh, Walking a Battlefield. He just sent me a message. He's, he was listening in. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's uh, what is it, uh, 10 in the morning there? It might be 11, 11 and 12 in the afternoon. But, yeah, I, I've, I freaking love that. Good historical stuff. And what you guys do is fantastic. Oh, so I appreciate my it. schedule together for May, and I'd like to have all you guys over on Tall Tales with Taco. We'll we'll intersperse and have a little fun. Fantastic. You got all our contact information. And as always, we can't forget the super busy Mr. Henry Sledge. Henry, what you got coming up on your plate, sir? Uh, the only thing I'm going to plug, uh, really, that, that I need to is the – Thursday. It was supposed to be tomorrow. It's going to be Thursday. The Veterans Breakfast Club is going to have an Okinawa show. They've got the 6th Marine Division historian and two Marine veterans from the 6th who were at Okinawa. And they invited me to to sit in and just, you know, offer a little... I'm I'm not going to say much. I want to hear what these two guys are actually there have to say. I think just as an honor to my dad, they invited me to participate so that'll be cool well you may want to prepare a little bit just in case um age kicks in for those gentlemen and uh they need you to help fill some time so just be prepared for that i'm reading the marine corps commemorative series volume on okinawa actually to to do just that don you're you're right yeah because hey before before you go henry i've always wondered did your dad wash that uniform behind you? Would that that was that ever washed, or was it just like thrown in the bottom of the sea bag? And no, he and he washed it. That one right there. I mean, that's that's definitely his. I mean, the shoulders ripped out of it. It's got his initials on the collar. But my mother and I've actually had some conversations. She thinks there's another one that he actually wore in combat on Peleliu. And I do remember him showing me one in his closet when I was a kid that was like really bleached out. Yeah, but he. He claimed before he died that that was it, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I have another one of his dungaree jackets that I sent to the Museum of the Pacific War out in Fredericksburg, Texas, but I kept this one. So, I mean, it was his. Now, did he wear that one in combat? I'm not sure, but you know what else you'd be impressed? Do you have his hat nearby, or is it far away? 
It's in the closet in there. He has his HBT hat that not only did he wear during the war, but he wore to mow the lawn. And this thing is well, when I was really small. But it's, it's that's his K bar and a Japanese bayonet right but, up there. But the yeah. HBT hat. Taco's seen all that stuff. I've seen. I've seen this stuff. It's it's say, the it's the Henry Sledge Living Memorial. I need to make <laughs> a trip over and come see you. Well, the thing I love about the hat is it is so salty that the edge of the brim is even frayed, and you can see the material of the texture inside of it. And I just, I'm a, I'm a HPT hat guy. I'm an, um, I love the P41s and P44s. I got like three of them and actually sent Henry another one to wear, but I just love that damn hat. But, um, that's going to wrap it up for this guys. And so, um, thank you guys so much. And we will talk to you all next week. This has been a digital 410 production. <laughs>